If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What did the day-to-day schedule of a medieval monk look like? Was it all just hard work, rules and praying? And could many of us hack the monastic lifestyle today? In her new book, How to Live Like a Monk, Danielle Cebulski charts the lives of medieval holy men. From morning rituals and mealtime misbehaviour to daily chores and worldly reflection. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, she explores what such an austere and structured lifestyle might be able to teach us today and how many monastic priorities about health and well-being weren't too different from our own. Hello, Danielle. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to meet you. (laughs) You've recently written a book, How to Live Like a Monk. So today, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Hopefully, we can share some top tips for living a monastic lifestyle and also look into how we can adapt these medieval wisdoms into the modern day. So are you ready to talk, monks? I'm always ready to talk monks. It's exciting to talk about monks, so I'm ready. Say, if you and I were to join a monastery, before we take the cowl, as it were, what sort of lifestyle would we be committing ourselves to? 
Well, for people who are joining a monastery, there are different flavors of monks, but mostly you are deciding when you go into a monastery to obey. So poverty, chastity, and obedience are mostly the vows that you're going to be taking. And because this is a really big vow to take, you have a year in which you try out being a monk. So you go to the monastery and your life is not as difficult as regular monks are, but you're living that lifestyle for a year and testing it out to see, can you actually be obedient and chaste and live a life of poverty? So we would be testing this out in slightly more comfortable clothes and with slightly less work for a year. And then at the end of that year, we would be taking our vows to join the monastery. And this would be for life. Once you're in a monastery, you're meant to be there for life. So it's a big decision to make. What sort of sacrifices might we make in becoming a monk? Well, I mean, you have to leave your old life behind. So once you're in the monastery, the idea is that you are staying within those walls. So there's a difference between monks and friars. Friars are kind of similar. They also wear robes. They also take vows, but they go out into the community and they preach. So that's Franciscans and Dominicans. But for monks who are living in the monastery... That's supposed to be their whole world. So they might do things like help out in a hospital or they might see people if they're selling their stuff at the market. But for the most part, they're staying within those walls. So everything outside the walls is what you're be you're meant to be giving up. So you won't have a lot of contact with your family. Ideally, I mean, people were always stretching rules as they do today. You wouldn't have a lot of contact with your family. You wouldn't have a lot of contact with the outside world. And you wouldn't have the comforts that you had, especially if you were in a noble house and you had all these comfortable ways of living, you have to give that up to go into the monastery. And I mean, that's the exact point of it. The point of living in a monastery is to live a life that is difficult and very structured in order to only be focusing on God. All of your efforts are going to be worshiping God, praying, praying for other people. Your life is just service and obedience. So, you're giving up most of your pleasures in life, which is why this is not a book about like actually becoming a monk. I don't think most of us want to. (laughs) So why did people make this choice in the medieval period? There's lots of reasons to become a monk. I think that most of the time when people think about monasteries, perhaps today, they're thinking like children were just shoved into a monastery as children. They're just left there as kind of a sacrifice and they just stay there for their entire lives. Well, people were actually really uncomfortable with that because they didn't want you to be a monk if you didn't make that choice for yourself. So while there was oblation, so children given to the monastery, young, earlier on in the Middle Ages, that kind of went by the wayside because this idea of consent was really important. So you could join the monastery as a child, perhaps, especially in the early Middle Ages, but not so much later on. You might join it as a place to get a meal every day and to get clothes and to get a place to sleep. So if you're impoverished, this is a good option for you too. But most of the time, people were joining monasteries because they truly had that calling, that devotion. They wanted to live a life of faith and service. And so when they did that, for the most part, it was because they were truly devoted to their faith. And I think that is true today of the the people who are monks today and nuns. Say, once we entered the monastery, how were we supposed to act? (laughs) 
Well, we were supposed to obey the abbot in all things. And this is a tricky thing. This is something that St. Benedict gets at in his rule, where he addresses the fact that you might disagree with your abbot or he might not be a great guy, and you're still supposed to obey him. You're supposed to offer your worries up to God and just do what you're told. And I think that's a very difficult concept for all of us to take Uh, take on is the idea of not having your own free will. But your life there is going to be one of a lot of obedience. It's going to be kind of boring. It's going to be routine all of the time. Uh, But that, again, is part of, it's part of the whole monastic shtick. You're supposed to be there to have a life that is only devoted to service. And that it is kind of a boring life. <laughs> it's well, that's maybe not fair to say because there are lots of things that you can do during the day, and that life is also rich in intellectual pursuits. So maybe that's not fair. But when I think about modern people taking a vow of obedience and a vow of just following this routine all day, I think a lot of people would push back against that because today we have a lot of ideas about our own free will and individualism. And I think that's a hard pill to swallow. And maybe I would like to talk to a monk today and ask them about this. Was this a difficult transition for you to make? Because I think it is a difficult transition for people to make both back then and now. And that's what makes it a sacrifice. I'd really like to delve into this routine, to the day-to-day life of what it would have been like to be a monk at this time. If we start our day-to-day life, our day-to-day routine, the sensible question would be, when are we waking up? Oh, you're waking up in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's brutal. And one of the things that monks complained about a lot was lack of sleep. So you're waking up when it's still dark and rolling down into the sanctuary and starting your mass for the day. And that that's your day. It starts really, really early. And then you're praying and then you're going about the work of the day, which has different parts to it. But I will let you, I will let you ask those questions about what you want to find out about what they do during the day. (laughs) Thank you. I was going to ask actually, is there sort of a morning routine? I think today we have a bit more of a structure. We have our breakfast, brush your teeth, have a shower, get dressed. Was there anything like that that was fixed for monks in this lifestyle? Well, the canonical hours of the times that you pray during the day, they were fixed in a sense in that they were stretched out over the course of the day and they always had uh, predictable intervals. And that would change depending on how much daylight you had during the day. So they're fixed in that you, you have this many canonical hours or times you're meant to be praying during the day. That is fixed. And so that would be something that they had to expect every day. So every day you're getting up early and you're starting to pray. And then there are a bunch of things that they would do. They don't get to have a big old breakfast like we do. They had basically one big meal every day and they would have one in the winter and they would have two in the summer. And that's because of the daylight hours. So when it's dark, they're sleeping until it's time to get up and pray again. But during the summer, the daylight hours are longer, so they have two big meals in a day. And that's big-ish. It's still relatively small, unless you're one of these abbeys that likes to bend the rules a little bit, which happened quite a lot. But one of the other things that they did in the morning was they had a meeting in the chapter house where all of the brothers would get together. And again, this is pretty much the same thing for nuns too, but for all of the for all the monks, they would get together in the chapter house and they would talk about the business of the day. So what's going on in the monastery? What business do they have to take care of? And this would be a time to confess your sins. If you did something bad towards the community, you had to kind of fess up or people might be outed 
about their sins, like someone else might be calling someone else in the chapter house. So they would have a meeting in the morning and talk about the day. And then they would do other things that kind of rotate throughout the day. So everybody is doing a little bit of physical labor to help the monastery work. So this could be gardening or repairing things or working in the scriptorium. You're doing some um, physical labor. And then during the day, you're also doing in between prayers, you're doing reading and intellectual labor. So most of this stuff is happening in silence. There's only a few times when you can actually speak to the other brothers. And if St. Benedict had his way, there'd be basically no time that you'd be speaking to other brothers about anything except for religious stuff. Most of the time, you do have people who are actually taking time to speak to each other, but it's meant to be about religious topics. You spoke there a little bit about some of the jobs that people might have taken on. Did certain people have certain jobs? Yeah, so they were given certain jobs depending on their seniority and they were elected to these positions. So someone would support you to be the sacrist or something. And the abbot had to agree to that. So usually someone would have a job for a while, depending on their skill set. And St. Benedict is really concerned with people doing work that that reflects their skill set or that works with their skills. He doesn't want to give people work that is too difficult for them. He wants to give them an opportunity to serve God with the talents that they have. So people did have fixed roles, but they might not stay in them for too long. It depended. And then they also had things that were on a rotating schedule. So the person who read at mealtimes, that's a rotating schedule. So you're not always the person who's the last to eat because you're reading a scripture at mealtimes while everyone else is listening. Those were on a duty roster. So some things were fixed um, and then other things were on a roster. So you have some people that are in charge of the actual physical space of the church. And those people are in charge of making sure you have all the candles in the right spot. You also have the um, bread and wine for the mass. You have all these things ready to go for the mass. Everything is clean. Then you have other people whose whole job is to take care of the the cellar. So making sure that everyone has enough wine and enough beer, which is really important in the monastic life. Everyone drank beer every day and they needed wine for the Eucharist. So these things are important. And then you have people who are in charge of the food for the day. So everyone has specific jobs and many of them um, are are really kind of outlined and structured. And these are the things that you're meant to do during the day. Um, librarians are in charge of not only repairing the books, taking care of the books, but also correcting the readers if they are incorrect about what they're, what they're saying. Librarians are also the people who are given out text during Lent, for example. So there are individual roles and they all have their tasks that they're supposed to perform during the, the course of the day. You spoke also about the studying, perhaps. What sort of things might a monk have expected to learn at this time? Well, this is a really cool question. And one of the things that I think is really related to what we can learn from monks, and that is that monks are expected to read broadly. So we know that they're supposed to read the Gospels, of course, it's something that is expected. And they're supposed to have the Psalms memorized, and they're supposed to have their hymns memorized, that kind of stuff. But they're supposed to read really broadly. So they are expected to read the ancient Greeks and Romans and 
expected to learn things about medicine, about history, about astronomy, about astrology, which is important to them in the Middle Ages, about math. And when we're talking about math, they're also reading from Islamic texts. So they're reading really, really broadly, and that's expected. And St. Benedict really works reading into the schedule so that on Sundays especially, monks are meant to be reading for a big part of the day. And if people interrupt these monks as they're reading, St. Benedict says they're to be punished in a way that is to make the others afraid. So, so reading is really important, but not only reading Christian texts, but reading all, all these pagan texts and texts that are uh, incorporating different types of information. And when we look at the most successful people today, they'll tell you the same thing. The more broadly we can read, the more we can make connections, the better it is for us and for moving moving our common knowledge forward. It's about having that wide scope knowledge. Yes, exactly. And for monks, this was a way of understanding the universe, understanding God's mind, how this worked, how all of these things worked, because they were so interested in how God thinks. <laughs> they were interested in all sorts of aspects of natural science and mathematics, as they say, music, and pretty much anything you could think of. You, you weren't really supposed to read literature as much, but they did. And also had, they also had saints' lives so that they could have these kind of adventure stories that were also based in faith. So they read really, really broadly. And I think that's something that maybe we don't expect. We expect them to only read the Gospels, but actually they read as much as they could across topics. So they're kind of reflecting outwards, but they also reflected inwards as well. Is that right? Yes, yes. So they did this in two ways. If we want to stick with books for a second, monks were the people who were chronicling. So it's because of monks and their recording of everything that happened within the monastery and outside of the monastery. It's mostly monks that give us this information that we can look back and find out about what's going on. So they're chronicling and that's a reflection of what they think about the world and what's happening. And they, again, they think of it in kind of universal terms. So like, how is this unfolding in terms of God's plan? And that's interesting when you think about how they're chronicling through that lens, but they're also reflecting inward in that they are meditating. And I was interested in learning about this because there's a lot of science about meditation right now. So I was wondering how this worked with monks. And with monks, as with any modern meditation, you pick something and you just think about that for a while and you come back to it and come back to it. So for monks, of course, they're thinking about religious themes. And it doesn't always have to be depressing. Like monks often thought about their sins and the things they did wrong, but it doesn't have to be like that. You can also reflect if you're a monk on the, the love of Jesus or the Virgin Mary or the saints or things that you find inspirational. It doesn't always have to be sad and, and dour, which I think perhaps we think about monks always, always going to the negative, but that's not exactly how it worked. You were encouraged to think of the good things too. And for meditation these days, you can do kind of the same thing, just sit quietly and the benefits are immense. And this is, this is really cool and something I think about when we think about how monks are living within an austere environment. It's, it's purposefully austere. It's difficult. So, 
how are they meeting these challenges? I think one of those ways is through meditation because we have learned that that meditation, that just sitting quietly in your own space and thinking about just one thing, kind of a deep focus, it actually changes the way our brains work. It makes us more calm and the benefits actually last for years. So I like to think about this and the science about meditation and how that reflects back on these monks and how maybe just this practice of meditating every day gave them some peace in order to face the challenges of getting up so early or having the same routine every day. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You're supposed to have kind of a bland diet, but I think that you are able to stretch that again and give people food that was tasty. You have all sorts of things like orchards to give you fruit. You have uh, fish and all sorts of sea creatures that you can eat that are going to be delicious as well. So I think it's not going to be as bland as we expect. And there's definitely no truth, I think, to the rumor that's going around today these days that people spice their food because it was rotten. Like, absolutely not. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another thing I think that we tend to think of now when we're thinking of having that free space in our minds is going outside. I think especially through lockdowns, going outside (laughs) has been such a relief. Mm -hmm. Did they have much opportunity for being outside for pleasure rather than for labour? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And actually that's built into their day as well. So monks are supposed to stay in the cloister. And so these buildings that make up kind of four walls are supposed to stay within that. But in the middle of their cloister and in the UK, you see this a lot. If you visit a monastery, you can see there is a garth in the middle, which is a, a lawn. It's usually just a green lawn for monks to just hang out in or cross on the way to church. And this is meant to be a green lawn for giving their eyes a rest, especially if they've been inside praying or they've been inside working in the scriptorium. They're meant to go and look at something green because it's meant to refresh their eyes. And there's lots of There's lots of texts from the Middle Ages that say green is the color that refreshes your eyes. And again, modern science has shown us that even a 30-second break looking at something green or, or something natural, even if it's a fake plant, even if it's a picture of a plant, that will make us more creative. It will make us better able to focus. It just gives us a little bit of a reset. And I was just reading something this week that talks about just looking at a natural fractal will also make us feel better, make us feel more creative. So monks have built this in, not knowing the neuroscience about it, but understanding that you need to take a break every once in a while and you need to look at something green. So they do have that cloister garth. They also have orchards and other gardens within the monastic community. And then they might be working in fields outside of it too. But that's built into the day purposefully to give them a rest. 
Did they have any other free time that they might be able to spend doing other things? Most of the time, it's not really free time because you're supposed to be doing work for God. But I think that there's a lot of opportunity throughout the day to have moments with friends or with other people. And this could be that you're gardening side by side with somebody. This is a relaxing thing that you can do. Or it could be that you are reading and perhaps you have a minute to talk about this text that you've just read. So there are opportunities to do that. I don't think that St. Benedict would want to call this free time. (laughs) Well, you can. I think there are moments that you would have during the day where even in this difficult, austere environment, you have times to talk with your friends about things that lift you up. And I think talking with friends about things that are important or difficult or that you just find interesting is also very healthy for us. And ideally, you have that kind of good community in a monastic environment. And this is something I talk about in the book too, that you very carefully choose who's going to be in your monastic community because the influence of other people is is extremely great back then and today too. So did abbots almost have a selection process for who was allowed into their community? <laughs> well, I think because you have that entire year, you know who's going to be creating the drama, right? We've all seen the reality shows where people are living in a house and there's always one or two people that are stirring the pot. And those are not the people that you want to be joining the monastery. So I think that the abbot would have a discussion with that person and say, look, I don't think this is the life for you, or I don't think this is the monastery for you. (laughs) Let me refer you to someone else. I mean, you might be stuck with people that are difficult to live with because perhaps when they enter the monastery, they bring with them a lot of wealth that the monastery needs to keep itself going. So I think that you often would have a toxic person, but ideally, (laughs) ideally over the course of the year, you figure out if you're not a good match and perhaps don't allow that person into the community. And I should mention that if somebody is very difficult to live with and they keep breaking the rules, the abbot would discipline them. And if they refuse to reform their behavior, they could actually be kicked out of the monastery and they could return if they mend their ways, up to three times. And after the third time, the abbot had the right to say, no, we are not, we're not bringing you back in. And I think that this is kind of, if we look at it from a modern point of view, this is an example of a healthy boundary, right? If somebody is constantly making life difficult for you, even monks who are like paragons of forgiveness, make it so that they are protecting themselves from a disruptive presence. So I think this is really interesting to setting this boundary, even as forgiving monks, that you don't need to have toxic people in your community if if they are not bringing anything useful to the table. Throughout what we've been chatting about, there's been so much conversation about rules. And I think that's something that when you picture a monk in your head, you're picturing very strict lifestyle. If we were living in a monastery, what sort of rules would we have to deal with? <laughs> Well, I think the most difficult one is probably silence. Uh, You're meant to be silent all the time. And this includes at mealtimes, like you sit and you listen to a reader. You're not meant to speak. And I think that's very difficult. And St. Benedict does really want people to be silent, like, pretty much constantly. And I think he recognizes that at least at some points, people are going to talk. And if you're going to talk, at least don't complain because that is going to make things difficult for everybody. Um, You do have to obey whatever the 
uh, Abbott says, and this is everything from you don't get a choice in what you're going to eat. You don't get a choice in when you get to wake up. You don't get a choice in what your activities are going to be. All of these things are laid out for you. So you all of the rules are basically, you don't have any free will. So you don't decide what you get to wear that day. You don't decide pretty much anything. You don't even decide what your reading material is going to be. That's given to you. So the rules are immense, but it comes down to just obedience. This is going to be laid out for you how you're going to live and you need to follow that. And that is not how I'm suggesting we should live like monks, by the way. (laughs) I think we should have free will over what we do. That's not one of the lessons within the book. How strict were monasteries really? Do we have any tales of misbehaviour? Oh, always, always. I mean, there is a stereotype of monks being overweight, for example, and that is... It's meant to make fun of monks back in the Middle Ages and today because they are not meant to eat a lot. They're not meant to be quote unquote gluttonous, right? So there is a lot of rule breaking around what you eat. They're not supposed to eat the meat of quadrupeds, for example. They're supposed to have a really lean diet. It's is basically the Mediterranean diet, lots of fish, lots of uh, natural stuff, uh, whatever is local. But you're not supposed to eat quadrupeds unless you're sick and you need to be nursed back to health. But we know that they had things like rabbit warrens and we know, we know that they ate things that they weren't supposed to eat. And I mean, in part, we have things like rabbit warrens to allow the abbot to host people because he's allowed to host outsiders as a way of taking care of the wider community and uh, hosting people and, and allowing pilgrims to come in and, and actually schmoozing the locals because often... Uh, a monastery is in charge of more land. They're landowners. So an abbot has to have good communication with the outside world. So he's allowed to eat pretty much whatever he wants, but we see this spilling over so that monks are eating things that perhaps they're not supposed to eat. But they also did things like sneaking in pets, which they weren't supposed to do. So sometimes you'll have examples of they have a cat or a small dog and one nun had a monkey (laughs) in one of the sources as a pet. I mean, sometimes they were pretty open about it. There's an Irish poem called The White Cat and the Monk, and it's about uh, a monk's relationship with a cat and how the cat has his job and the monk has his job. So they're kind of open about it, but they're not really supposed to have pets. And another example is... One time, I think it was in Bury St. Edmunds, the abbot called everyone to chapter and said, okay, everyone lay your seals on the table because people were using their personal seals or the monastery seals to borrow money. And they ended up with 30 seals, people buying stuff for themselves. And they're not supposed to really own anything either. So there's rule breaking all the time, which I think speaks to the fact that This lifestyle is so difficult that people break rules in order to cope with it. So again, like I don't think most of us would want to actually live that 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 way within a monastery, within its rules. So it's funny to see how people try and bend the rules or break the rules to make this easier for themselves. And that human nature is to take a rule and see how far you can get away with things. So you touched on food, and this is another thing that I really wanted to talk about, because fundamental part of our day, really. You've hinted at there was the fact there was a little bit of rule breaking and the fact that they may have snuck in some luxuries that they weren't meant to be having. Mm-hmm. But generally, was 
monastic food as bland and as unappetizing as popular culture, I think, would have it. I don't think so. I don't think so. In general. I mean, there is there is the fact that you did have kind of a plain loaf of bread that you're supposed to eat every day and you do have beer and that's not really going to change. But there are so many options that we have with just regular plants that are just everywhere, like onion and garlic and cilantro or coriander, things like that you can just add. And things like spices from the Middle East or further afield were not all that difficult to get. You're supposed to have kind of a bland diet, but I think that you are able to stretch that again and give people food that was tasty. You have all sorts of things like orchards to give you fruit. You have uh, fish and all sorts of sea creatures that you can eat that are going to be delicious as well. So I think it's not going to be as bland as we expect. And there's definitely no truth, I think, to the rumor that's going around today these days that people spice their food because it was rotten. Like, absolutely not. You don't want to eat rotten food. It's going to make you sick. It was there to make your food taste better. And it didn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot today to make tasty food out of just the things that are growing around you. So I don't think it was particularly bland. That said, in the winter, it could be kind of bleak. You're going to be eating the same thing. And over the course of Lent, you have 40 days that are all fish days. So that's going to be a lot of eels. You might get sick of the food. That said, I don't think it's just gruel every day. (laughs) Where would you be eating and who would you be eating with? So you'd be eating in the refectory and you'd be eating with other monks and you would be seated in terms of seniority. And again, this is another thing that I think is kind of interesting about medieval monks is that seniority doesn't mean how old you are. It means how many years you've been in the monastery. So you could be younger than someone and be sitting at a better place at the table. But yeah, you're sitting with everyone else in the refectory and everybody is listening to somebody reading from a text. So that's not something that really relates to the modern world that much. I think maybe we are reading while we're eating or listening to podcasts and trying to educate ourselves while scarfing down some food. But that is the way that monks ate. I think another really important point to touch on as a fundamental part of a lifestyle is the clothing. Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell us about the clothing? What if we were monks, what would we be wearing? You would be wearing something that wasn't very expensive. (laughs) It would be a homespun wool garment usually. And again, this changes depending on how rich you are or how much you care about luxuries. Like you'd sneak in a better wool garment perhaps if you could afford it or if your family was rich or they might give you a better robe or something. But for the most part, it's supposed to be homespun wool and not dyed or dyed a very simple color. So you have white ones, Uh, brown ones and black ones, depending on your order. And then you have a belt and then you have sandals usually. And if it's too cold for sandals, you have like a simple pair of boots, but that's it. You do have two changes of clothing. So you have two robes and that is so that one can be laundered. And so you are wearing your robe all the time and to sleep, but it is getting washed. So it's not, it's not so gross that it can stand up by itself, but you don't really have much more than that. There were uh, sort of breeches that you could wear if you're going out into the community. And St. Benedict imagines that you wash them and then you put them back so that the next brother going into the community can wear these. So this is like communal underwear, which I think is kind of hilarious and not something we should bring into the modern world, perhaps. But you only have enough clothes to wear and to wash. And that's it. You don't have much else. Were monks able to have any other possessions at all? 
Yes, they could have other possessions, but they were all belonging to the monastery, right? So that you had possessions that you might carry on your body, but really they are not something that belongs to you. You can, you have to give it back if you're asked for. It's just not something that personally belongs to you. So uh, I wanted to mention this because you're not supposed to have really any personal possessions, but you have a needle with you. And in fact, some monks got in trouble for not having a needle with them to make repairs to their outfits if they got ripped or something like that. You want to look neat all the time. You could have a wax writing tablet with a stylus so that you could take notes if you needed to. You could have an eating knife, but not too much more than that. It was going to be just the things that you need to eat with, write with, and repair your stuff with. That's basically it. You would have things like soap. You might get an allotment of soap for washing yourself or if you're doing your own laundry for washing your clothes, but mostly you have just the bare essentials and that's it. And it's funny to think about that in in modern terms, like people are always talking about minimalism. How little can we live with? And I think when you when you come back to the basics, it's Again, the same things. You need stuff for repairs. You need stuff to write with. And uh, you need stuff to eat with. And that's basically it. Everything else we add to our lives is perhaps superfluous. (laughs) So when it comes to modern life, we want to think about the things that we add to our lives. And when when we're thinking about monks, this is a very, very small baseline. And I don't think any of us could actually live like that. Like we're camping all the time. But when we think about the actual basic essentials we need, it gives us a perspective as to how many things we add to our lives that maybe we don't need. And so when I think about monastic minimalism, again, that's taking it to the very bare bones. And then when we add to that in the modern world, it's interesting to think about what we've added that we think is essential. Is it really essential? Because there is a conversation about minimalism that I think is still happening today. What other tips do you think we could perhaps take away from the monastic lifestyle other than minimalism, as you've just said? Well, I think that we need to bear in mind that even when things are very difficult for us, we're we're living in quarantine or we are working all the time, that we need to learn from monks. They say that you can't just work all the time. You can't just be constantly focused on work or on a single thing. And I think this is something that might be surprising to people because monks put themselves in a position where they are living at work and all of their life is supposed to be work. But they say you can't actually pray all the time. You can't actually fast all the time. You need to take a break, whether that's taking a walk and talking about philosophy or something, theology with your friends, whether that's taking some time to do some gardening. You cannot just spend all your time working and that will lead to burnout. And burnout is very dangerous. As we know, it can give you a mental health breakdown. And this is something that did happen to monks. They've written about it, saying people that were too overzealous push themselves to the brink of suicide sometimes. And they're saying, that's dangerous. Don't do that. And so I don't think we think about moderation when we think about monks, but they do actually advocate for that. So that time spent reading, that time spent outside is meant to refresh you. And I think we don't necessarily prioritize that in the modern world. We want to be machines. We want to work all the time. We want to be very productive, you know, quote unquote productive, but we need to build in that time for, for play, for walks in nature, for reading. And that's really important. I think that perhaps is the best lesson to take from monks when you have people living in a really difficult environment, even they say, don't burn out. (laughs) 
So, I mean, that's a lesson for us all. Don't burn out. If you can take a minute and just rest, that's important. I was going to ask you one last question, which is, if our listeners were to go back and be medieval monks, what would be your top tips for them? (laughs) Uh, Kind of the same thing. I would say pace yourself. Pace yourself. Understand that you are a human being and that as a worker, as a human, remember that you are a human being. So if you don't like eating the same food every day, that's okay. (laughs) That's all right. If you need to take a break and go outside in order to do better work later, that's okay. And what I think people need to remember if they were to time travel back into a monastery, that that expectation that you are human, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to need rest was built into the medieval idea of what it is to be human. And I think that's something we can both think of when we're looking back at the past and that grace we could give ourselves today. That was Danielle Sobolski. Her book, How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life, is out now, published by Abbeville Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.